Jersey Council of Indian Affairs has announced plans to disrupt Monday's Columbus Day Parade in Newark. Council Chairman Del Red Clay, Professor of Cultural Anthropology Stop at Rutgers, your nose. I want to says hear this. council members and supporters will lie down in the path of Columbus Day marches, quote, in protest of Columbus's role in the genocide of America's Native peoples, unquote. To launch their protest, the Native Americans and their sympathizers plan to begin a death watch tomorrow over the Statue of Columbus in Christopher Columbus Park. Some fucking balls badmouth in America, especially now. I thought the Columbus was the hero of America. Oh, see, it's these Indians and the commie fucks. They want to paint Columbus as a slave trader instead of an explorer. You gotta admit, they did get massacred, the Indians. It's not like we didn't give them a bunch of shit to make up for that. Land. And now they got the casinos. The fuck we ever get waiting have to work our balls off for? I wouldn't mind sitting on my ass all day smoking mushrooms and collecting government checks. <laughs> you know what it is? I'll tell you what it is. It's anti-Italian discrimination. Columbus Day is a day of Italian pride. It's our holiday, and they want to take it away. Fuck them. But I never liked Columbus. Oh, hey, hey, In Napoli, a lot of people are not so happy for Columbus, because he was from Genova. What's the problem with Genova? The north of Italy always have the money and the power. They punish the south since hundreds of years. Even today, they put up their nose at us like we're peasants. I hate the north. Welcome to Green and Red. Scrappy politics for scrappy people. A regular podcast on radical, environmental, and anti-capitalist politics. Brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Park. Welcome to the silky smooth sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I am your co-host, Scott Parkin in Berkeley, California. And as always, I'm joined by... Uh, Bob Bazanko, and good to be here today, uh, especially since uh, we're talking to an old comrade of mine uh, about uh, Indigenous Peoples Day, nay, Columbus Day. Um, but before I get started on that, I, I would like to just briefly point out, you can see behind me, uh, today's the anniversary of the death of Che Guevara in Bolivia, October 9th, uh, 1967. We're recording this a few days prior to October 12th. And uh, I know, you know, for our listeners and people on the left in general, Che has really been an iconic figure. And, uh, you know, given the turmoil we're in today, um, it's kind of fun to think about him and to, to think about uh, how important he was to a generation that came of age in that period, Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, Ho Chi Minh, uh, Yasser Arafat, Thomas Sankara later. I mean, just so many people in this kind of global, Lumumba, international. Patrice Lumumba. Patrice Lumumba. I just think there was this global movement for, for human liberation, you know, all over the world. And we're seeing, you know, kind of inklings of that uh, today. Again, we're starting to see these kind of global movements, which is really cool. And whenever that happens, I think, you know, it's worthwhile to kind of think about Che a little bit, go back and read some of the things he wrote and, you know, learn about some of the stuff he did. So anyway, uh, and as, at here at the Green and Red Podcast, we are always motivated by Che's idea that the uh, uh, true revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. So having said that, I want to introduce uh, a dear friend and comrade, uh, Michael Oberg. Mike is a distinguished professor, a very distinguished professor of history at 
uh, Suni Genicio, uh, received his PhD at Syracuse, has written a ton of stuff. Um, Uncas versus the Mohegans. I'm not going to go through all of it. Uh, the head in Edward Newton's hand. Uh, Professional Indian, the American Odyssey of Eleazar Williams and Peacemakers. Uh, the Iroquois, the U.S., and the Treaty of Canandaga. Uh, Okay, and probably the standard textbook now in in the field, uh, Native America: A History, which was published by Wiley Blackwell, and which is also the title of his blog, which you can find on, uh, you know, just by doing a search on on his name or Native America colon A History. Uh, welcome to Green and Red, Mike. It is uh, a celebration or a commemoration or a, a lamentation of Indigenous Peoples Day, nay Columbus Day today, and so. Uh, to get started, why don't you tell us like why this became a big deal? Why this became, first of all, why it became a holiday, and then you know what that holiday reflects, and why so many people have issues with it, why it's so problematic. <laughs> well, it's, now, it's, that, that'll only take an hour or two. So. Yeah, you know, look, <laughs> Columbus Day found its origins in the early 20th century amongst Italian Americans who were themselves victims of uh, bigotry and prejudice and discrimination. And what Italian-Americans did was essentially claim Columbus as their own, right? That, that, that we're not un-American, that we're not enemies of the state. You know, you mentioned Sacco and Vanzetti before we got started, that, that we're loyal citizens, that we were there at the very beginning, right? So it was, it was, a, it was a, a measure to sort of buy into the American dream that we are, we are here, we matter, and, and our history on this continent is deep. It's been celebrated pretty uncritically ever since, right? Christopher Columbus, the discoverer of America. And look, the, the movement towards Indigenous People Day, it seems to me, began around the time of the 500th anniversary of, of Columbus's voyage in the early 90s. And you began to see during that period some, 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 some polemical scholarly works, Kirkpatrick Sales, The Conquest of Paradise, and things like that, that really began sort of lifting the veil from this, the, uh, over this myth of, of Columbus as this great explorer. And, and I think what has emerged over time is this, this notion that Columbus is, is, is a mythical figure. He's, he's a symbol of all sorts of things. He's a symbol for those who, who embrace Columbus Day, and he is a symbol for those who embrace Indigenous Peoples Day, right? If, for, for President Trump, and you can go to, a, go to the White House website and you can read um, President Trump's last uh, couple of uh, proclamations uh, for Columbus Day. Hopefully this October, Monday will be his last one. But what the president has done in these proclamations is he celebrates Columbus as a great explorer, as an adventurer, as the guy who discovered America, with no mention whatsoever of the consequences of, of the arrival of the Spanish and other Europeans in the Americas. No discussion of it at all. Whereas those who advocate for Indigenous Peoples Day will say, well, look, there were consequences with this. And, and this whole sense that, you know, when I went to Syracuse, I was in Syracuse from 1990 to 1994, and I was one of those tunnel vision grad students who didn't really pay attention to much other than what I was doing. I'd never seen snowfall before I moved to New York. So I just hunkered down and stayed in the library. And when I got my first job in, in Montana, I think my, my, one of my first years there, I, got a, I, I was invited to participate in this NEH seminar on the Blackfeet Reservation, way up in the northwestern corner of Montana. And it was, it was one of these gatherings where elementary and middle school teachers were coming together on the reservation to talk about young adult books and books for kids of that age. And one of these books was a um, book by the late Michael Doris called Morning Girl. It's kind of a cute story of this girl who lived on, on Guanahani in San, San Salvador 
And it's sort of her and her brother and their hijinks and they're having fun. And the book ends, the last page of the book is Columbus's letter when he got to, got to North America. And this letter, it, it's the letter where he talks about, I didn't see anyone except for one young girl. And that's, that's the girl we've been reading about. And, and a couple of paragraphs later, Columbus says, well, they'll make good servants. And I was listening to the discussion and the Native American teachers at this gathering all said that they would use this book, but they would cut that last page out of the book. F physically, they would remove that, that Columbus letter from the book. It was too much for their students. And I have to admit, it's caught me a little off guard, but, but their point was, you've got this beautiful story of these two beautiful children. It, it's this, this great depiction of, of life. And at its end, you have Columbus, you know, in 1492, Columbus sails the ocean blue and contemplates out loud how indigenous children will make good slaves. Kids, children, it, it is too much they felt for the kids. And, and that's when I, I got started talking about this. I've never really, have, have, Columbus wasn't my, my, my topic of research, but it's something I've been following very closely. And I think it's become more of an issue as we've gotten into the dispute over um, monuments and things like that, the removal of Confederate monuments. And as this healthy movement has, has got underway, Columbus has, has re-entered the discussion and Columbus statues have been defaced. Just today, Friday before Columbus Day, the mayor of Syracuse has announced that it's huge Christopher Columbus statue in the city's Columbus Square will be removed and taken down in response to sort of a community-wide coalition, including the neighboring Onondaga nation to, to, to bring this down. But, but the, the reaction to this kind of stuff, and you see this in, in, in the president and in right-wing radio and, 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 and all sorts of people is that this is somehow an attack. It's, it's unfamiliar. It's, it's, it's revisionist history, right? And what I think people outside of, of my line of work and your line of work, Bob and Scott, what they don't realize, right, is that history is being revised all the time. It's, it's being revised in, in the scholarship. It's being revised in, in seminar rooms. And, and now, and I think this is, is the exciting part about it, is being, being revised in the streets. That's one of the things that's really kind of, I think, been really compelling in the past six months, especially like, you know, all of a sudden Americans are like captivated with all kinds of histories. I'm going to talk about the statues a little more, but, you know, uh, I, obviously everybody who listens to this knows I, I grew up in a, in a very Italian community, uh, Sicilian, actually. But um, Columbus for us actually wasn't that big a deal. And uh, we opened this with a clip from uh, the famous show, The Sopranos, where they're, they're very upset because Native Americans are protesting Columbus. And, you know, growing up, we were actually more kind of familiar with cultural figures, you know, like Joe DiMaggio and Frank Sinatra. But recently, the, the governor of your state, uh, who's a paisan, Andre Cuomo, when they were talking about Columbus, essentially, I forget what he said, you know, this is a symbol to the Italian, but what he meant was it's, you know, he didn't use the words, but what he was saying was the same thing Southerners were saying about Confederate monuments. It's heritage, not hate, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, not all Italians feel that way. I mean, there are many of us who understand that, that this is really, you know, kind of a very painful uh, uh, reckoning for a lot of people. And it doesn't really, uh, you know, make Italians look better or proud. But yeah, it does come within a context of, you know, some really serious anti-Italian problem, like in, you know, uh, New Orleans in 1891, the lynching of Sicilians and the kind of equation with the mob and all that. So, you know, it's important to bring that out. And there is this reckoning with history. You know, when Americans first started, you know, kind of studying Columbus, was it like Samuel L. Morris and historians like that who kind of created this myth about him? Um, was there even any mention of, of natives when, you know, people started actually writing about this, like at the beginning of the 20th century, or were they always just eliminated from the picture? 
No, at, at, at best, they, they, they almost are cast as, as the winged monkeys in Wizard of Oz, right? They, they don't mean anything unless they attack. Otherwise, they're uh, missed completely. They're, you know, you know, Frederick Jackson Turner, right? When, you know, he didn't write about the Caribbean, but the frontier, right? It's, it's the outer edge of the wave, right? The, the meeting point between savagery and civilization. It's just this wave that, that erodes things. And, and look, the holiday, at all sorts of ob objective levels, it's just sort of dumb, right? Columbus never set foot in North America, never set foot in North America. So, so he, he, he's become this, you know, this symbol of things. You know, I, I have this conservative Italian-American friend, and he said, you know, why couldn't they pick another day? Why not make another day Indigenous Peoples Day? There's, there's 364 other days, and this is creating conflict where none is needed. And, you know, I mean, I think there's, you know, he says Italian-Americans have done a lot for the country. They've suffered a lot of discrimination. They deserve their own day, too. You shouldn't have to give up their day. You can have, everyone can have a day, right? <laughs> and I thought, okay, that's great. But I think... For me, you know, so much of the writing about Columbus ignores the consequences of this encounter. It ignores Native peoples. It, it, they're invisible, right? And, and I think that's, that's the problem. My, my own research, my own writing, I write about Indians, right? I, I don't want to talk about Columbus. I, I think it, what, what's far more interesting, right? If you look at the early explorers, you can talk about Columbus. You can talk about uh, where I grew up in Southern California. You've got Cabrillo, right? Uh, you've got Coronado, sort of. <laughs> wandering around the Southwest, realizing that <laughs> these wheat fields, these grasslands are as hard to negotiate as the ocean, right? You've got, uh, you've got uh, DeSoto you, in the South, you've got the French sending Cartier, and what do these guys in the 16th century accomplish? Nothing, nothing. <laughs> they come and they leave. They don't do anything. And what little they accomplish is solely because of the native peoples who enlist them in their battles, who exploit them as trade partners and cast them off once they realize they're of limited usefulness. For me, the indigenous people are, are a much more interesting part of the story, but we have to have these Europeans do that. So the invisibility of Indians in the Columbus Day narrative is the reason why I think the day ought to be replaced with Indigenous Peoples Day so we can change the focus. Right? And, and, and talking about Indigenous Peoples Day, and this is the point I talking about telling blue in the face with folks, it doesn't have to demean your, your, your coveted Western tradition. It doesn't have to demean the country. In fact, I'm, I'm sure you guys teach, right? You, how many times have you had a student come up to you and say, you know, I feel like I've been cheated because of the crap I was taught in high school, right? The, the, yeah. Oh, yeah. Lots, my teachers lots. are lying to me. You get it when you do the, the progressive era. You get it when you do the 60s. You get it do when you cover slavery. You know, you, you want to damage kids, keep bullshitting them. <laughs> but if you, if you give them, yeah. are we allowed to cuss on this? Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. Okay, Let it go. So yeah. If we're <laughs> Trump did it today on Fox News. So if he dropped an F-bomb, we can do a dozen. You but, know? So, so I think that there, there's, there's no reason why this has a damage thing. And, and you, know, you mentioned the, the, the president, this stupid White House history conference that didn't take place at the White House and didn't have any really any historians on the panel. The president is talking about this this insidious plot to undermine America. And he was talking about the 1619 project. He's talking about Howard Zinn's book, which is what, 40, 40 some years old, 42 oh, yeah. years now, something yeah. like that. I mean, it's 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 I think everyone who loves it recognizes it's a great but flawed book enormously influential, right? It's, it's the gateway drug for at least my generation of historians into 
looking at the, the history of non-elites, but they see this all as a, as a menace and a threat, and it, and it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. We can talk about Columbus on Indigenous Peoples Day, and we can talk about the fact that he came here seeking, you know, wealth, right? This, this, this nothing about this country was not founded on liberty and 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 freedom. It was founded on on making money, right? And Columbus was sure. looking for wealth, and he couldn't find anything, right? <laughs> the the, the, the he wasn't thinking tourism when he got there. The Caribbean's gorgeous, but he was thinking of mineral wealth. And very quickly, he, he turns to slavery. 1495, his men round up 1,600 people, and he takes the four, what, 400, 500 best of them, loads them on ships and ships them back to, to, to Spain. 200 of those 500 died on the way back, cast overboard. The next year, he wrote about a, a bigger plan for over 40, 1495, 1496. He wanted to bring 4,000 indigenous slaves back to Iberia. And the queen, you know, that, that, that would require, what, a couple of dozen ships to, to do something like that. The queen was not interested in bankrolling that sort of investment. But that gives you a sense of where we're thinking. And you can jump from Columbus just a couple of years later to, to uh, Botelines de las Casas, right? And, and this, 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 the, the devastation of the Indies. And you, you have a book that is really the, the, the chronicle of the first modern genocide in, 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 in well, modern history, right? Of, 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 of Spanish ships being able to sail home without the aid of navigational instruments because they can follow the floating corpses of indigenous slaves thrown overboard or of, you know, uh, shops in New Spain where you could buy human flesh to feed your dogs. You, you could read about Spanish conquistadors having contests to see how many Indians they could, they could spear with one thrust of the pike and grabbing babies by the heels and bashing their brains out. It, it, it's a horrific story. There is nothing edifying about the story at all, save for the fact that indigenous people survived it and they're still here. And, 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 and face the facts, right? That there are indigenous people around today to advocate for Indigenous Peoples Day is a triumph and, and well worth celebrating. I was, at, I was a history teacher as well. I taught community college in Houston before I moved to the Bay Area and did what I did. And I used to teach, I used to basically teach out of Zen when I kind of taught this period. And it always like, what kind of struck me is like, I feel like it's the the sort of what, what Trump is tapping into. Because I taught in the, the suburbs of Houston, like places like Clear Lake and uh, Pasadena and places like that. And it's just like, even so that was late nineties, early two thousands and the, in the sort of vitriol though, that when you would like kind of tell them this piece, like there was a study last year in 2019, that something like 50, 55 million natives died between Columbus landing and like the early 1600s. And they were just like, they didn't believe it. And it's just like amazing to me, the sort of kind of, there's a mass denial that still kind of exists around this, even though my day job now is I work at an environmental organization I work with and indigenous people all the time. And it's just like, you know, constantly advocating on this piece. Like there's a lot of other things that, you know, they're advocating on whether it's pipelines or indigenous rights, what have you, but like, you know, they are completely demonized and targeted in like really racist ways. Part, I mean, part of it is just blatant racism, but it's just like, it's just amazing to me that like, here we are in 2020, that this is still, this still continues. Yeah, those those are some of the some of the best people I work with, and some of the strongest, smartest people I work with, and they just have to deal with that every day. <laughs> it it's it it comes up a lot, right? I mean, it's it's it it comes with with doing what we do, and 
but I, I think we have to in, engage those people, right? And and I, you know, it, it, it's just to come back to the president, right? Because and I don't mean just to pick on the president, because what? Feel free. We we do it all the time. Well, but he's, you know, to Trump's Trump's a symptom yeah. of a, of a yeah. problem, oh, yeah. and yeah, he's sure. he's mouthing things that have been mouthed for 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 decades, right? I mean, a lot of the stuff that's being said about the sixteen nineteen project could have. You, you could substitute the, the national history standards from what, 19, the mid 1990s. Yeah, same training. Yeah. Right. And, and I think, you know, it's, <laughs> I, I do have this faith in, in sort of urgent Socratic dialogue, <laughs> being able to move some of these people who, who raise these arguments with wisdom, because we don't, we don't, I mean, there's, there's huge debates over the number of people in, in the Americas prior to Columbus's voyage. And, 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 and there's, there's a, a wide range of, of reasonable estimates. It doesn't change the fact that within four or five decades of Columbus's arrival, the, the Caribbean was, was a ghost town. It was, it, was, it was depopulated. Similar things happened beginning in the 17th century. Students are shocked when they learn that um, more Native American slaves were exported from the Carolinas before, what, 1700, than African slaves imported. Right. They 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 are shocked when they're told that um, two thirds of the people who crossed the Atlantic to English America between 1630 and 1780 were slaves, Africans. And and, and, and so, so they'll argue, well, African-American history is an American history. It's this adjunct. It's this politically correct topic. No, it's central to the whole thing. And in a state like you know, you guys were in Houston, you were in Cotto country, right? You, you, uh, Natchitoches is up the road. You've got all these, you still got these indigenous place names around there. New York, where I live, New York simply could not have taken the shape it has today in the way that it has without a systematic program of Indian dispossession. I, mean, I, I teach at a college in, in Geneseo, that's what it's called. Geneseo yeah. is a Seneca place name. It goes back to the 1600s. Everyone knew where Geneseo was in the 1600s. It was a it was a, it was a major town, and there are people in Geneseo who have no sense of, of, of that history. And I think it's it, it's it's really unfortunate, and I think it's 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 it, 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 it saddens me in a way because I think we have these classrooms that are increasingly diverse, this increasing mix of people. And when we start telling these stories, we, we start telling these students, these kids, right, that their stories matter. And when we start telling them their stories matter, we start telling them in essence that they are themselves forces of history. And I think that's, that's where you see the students get turned on by this sort of stuff. And then they start asking these questions and I don't care what they ask about history, but you see them starting asking questions to people who have power, people who make statements without evidence and you have suddenly citizens who are willing to speak truth to power. And I hate to break this to the current leaders of the Republican party, but that, that's what citizenship's about, right? You go back to Socrates for that and you, you speak truth to power. So it, it's, it's a drag that, that we don't want to talk about this stuff. Um, yeah, the first day of the semester, I always ask my students why we study history. And you know, the, the typical answer is so we can learn from mistakes of the past. And, you know, I point out nobody ever, learns from their past mistakes. I've been divorced twice. So, uh, but, you know, basically we study history to, to make yourself feel good about your society, about your ruling class and to kind of cover up, um, um, 
you know, these kind of uh, atrocities in many cases in the past. And one thing that strikes me about Columbus is, you know, Columbus is actually standing for Spain, which is another reason I never understood the kind of how Italians embraced him. But, uh, um, you know, we kind of you know, why not? On, and why not Amerigo Vespucci? Yeah, right. Or, you know, like I said, Sacramento, <laughs> Yogi Berra, you know, uh, uh, Connie Francis, you know, uh, uh, there's a lot of them out there. Uh, Lady Gaga. Tony Bennett. But, um, but, you know, there's also this history of American atrocities, too, you know, in, in the colonial era in Virginia, the Pequot War, probably the best example of those. And, um, you know, I found out about all, all, all this really from Howard Zinn, you know, because he, you know, I, I hadn't wasn't familiar with De Las Casas before I read Howard Zinn. And I think, you know, uh, uh, you're right. His book is, is, is kind of I think it's very romantic. Uh, but, you know, there's some stuff in there that's absolutely essential. You know, you're teaching specifically, you know, courses in this. So they're going to get a lot of stuff from you. And I don't really teach the first half of the survey anymore. But when I did, I talked about that. But I don't get the sense that most, you know, history teachers or history professors, you know, even really kind of approach this stuff. And how do you, you know, how do you deal with that? How do you try to tell people that this is important, not just, you know, because we want to get the history right, but it has all kinds of implications for the way we, you know, structure society, uh, power dynamics, you know, what the ruling class can get yeah. away with. Well, I, I start the class by asking them, you know, sort of saying, what do you, what do you know about Native American history? Yeah. And then usually it's all wrong or romantic or sim simplified. It's, it's not the student's fault, but that's what they've been taught. Cinematic, I'm sure a lot of it's Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah. I, so I, I, I tell them, look, everything you've been taught is wrong. <laughs> and that that kind of gets them hooked. And then I, said, and then I ask them, well, why, why are you being taught stuff that's wrong? Is it that your teachers are idiots and they don't know what they're talking about? Or is it because the curricula that they're being required to teach is the people who put that together are afraid to confront certain realities about the past. And we can talk about that all they want, but I think by, by putting it in those terms that, that it's sort of attractive to them that they're, oh, they're, they're in on something now, right? They're going to, they're going to unearth this conspiracy, right? We're going to find out who the rats are and, and, and find out where the bodies are buried and, and start doing it. But the fact of the matter is, you know, all my students, pretty much all our students come from New York state. So I am teaching New Yorkers, but I write a textbook for everyone in, in, in North America. And I think the thing is that this country's history can't be understood apart from Indians, right? Uh, you, you mentioned the Pequot War. The Pequot War is often depicted as it's this horrible massacre, right? They, they, they burn this town that they're unable to fight their way into. What, what they don't realize is that the English are essentially the stooges of different indigenous powers in this, this war. Again, you have if you shift the focus to native peoples and indigenous peoples, you get a much different look at this, at this whole period. Um, you can argue, right, that the American Revolution, to some extent, resulted from the inability of the empire to prevent warfare with India, right? I mean, you, you got the you got the French and Indian War, and then you, then you've got Pontiac's Rebellion, mm -hmm. the Proclamation of 1763, which which angers the Virginians, and then you have this disastrous period of uh, policy of taxation which was, you know, justified on the grounds that, that the empire needed to defray at least a portion of the cost of defending this territory it acquired from France. It's, it's central to everything. And then again, in New York, right? I mean, I, I teach in Geneseo, I drive, I, I, I go shopping in Irondequoit, in, in Nunday, in Tonawanda, in Cahocton. Um, it's everywhere around you. While the students may learn something about Indian removal, that when they when when they cover Indian removal in, in high school, they learn about Cherokee removal. They don't learn about the removal of Indians from New York State. Yeah. Why is that? Why 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 is that? <laughs> why 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 are they not taught that? Well, part of it's because the Cherokees made the whole debate about themselves to some extent, but 
the simple fact is it, it, it makes people uncomfortable, right? If, if you're a landowner in this state, New York, just like, you know, where you are in Ohio, Bob, and you are too, Scott, right? You're, you're a beneficiary of dispossession. You are. It doesn't matter that you did nothing. You, you are a beneficiary. So that's what, that's my pitch. Well, you know, my, my graduate um, field was actually U.S. diplomatic history, foreign relations. And so I learned about all those, you know, we, we read extensively in that. So, you know, coming out of it, I actually probably knew more than, than most people did because of that. I don't know if they, they still uh, really study that um, any longer. Uh, and, and, you know, when this, we're going to do a show on the 1619 Project hopefully soon. Um, but, you know, it strikes me that that's become the centerpiece. And, and, the, and the, you know, the, 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 and, and I think there's some, it's somewhat problematic in some ways. But uh, um, it seems to me that there's, there's no corollary for Native American history, nothing close to this, this focus. And, and, and obviously, you know, American slavery is immense. But um, I mean, what wasn't kind of one of the initial plans to actually enslave both in, the uh, Spanish colonies in the North American, in the British colonies, wasn't one of the original plans to actually use the Indians for, for forced labor, the Native Americans. And, you know, when when this kind of went awry with things like Bacon's Rebellion, that's kind of the, the textbook uh, uh, explanation of that. Is that realistic or is that? Well, mo most of the colonial promoters, the people in England who are writing about it, they, 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 they want to profit from their yeah. colonial ventures. They want to establish secure footholds on American shores and, and they want to spread what what they saw as the one and only true religion. And, and of course yeah. the French and English could fight over what, what and Spanish could fight over what that is. Most of them realized that they could achieve those goals most easily and least expensively with the assistance of indigenous people. Okay. Um, unfortunately, the people on the ground doing the settling, they wanna extract wealth from the land and in places like, like the South, Virginia and the Carolinas and, and in New England after King Philip's War, there's massive enslavement of native peoples. You don't necessarily see those slaves working in labor camps in the colonies, right? The, the, most of those indigenous slaves are shipped out to the British Caribbean or the English Caribbean, right? So, and, and there the, you know, historians have worked on trying to track them down. We're, a number of books have come out in recent years sort of getting a sense of the numbers and, and it's, it's significant. It's more than anyone had, had anticipated. So Pequot War captives shipped out to the Caribbean, King Philip's War, captive shipped out to 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 um shipped out to the caribbean if they aren't absorbed by the year so uh and then and of course virginia and the carolinas you have this series of enslavement where one group is armed to go get slaves for the next and eventually you run out of indians to enslave and and, and the carolinas blow up into warfare in the first couple of decades of the 18th century the, the amnesty war and the tuscarora war that essentially brings those colonies to their knees so Indigenous slavery, and, 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 and you know, that <laughs> it's been in the last 15, 20 years with Alan Galay's book a couple years, a couple, well, a couple decades back, and then a series of books since then. No one was talking about indigenous slavery much before that, but now it's it, it's the center of scholarly discussions. The, the Fox War, Brett Rushforth's book on on the on on the Western Great Lakes and the French colonies, slavery runs through that. There's this notion that the French were somehow the nice colonizers. <laughs> no, no, they yeah. were engaged in the slave in, in the slave trade as, as everyone else was. Slavery is ubiquitous, and indigenous slavery was 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 a constant. You know, I uh, this summer I actually read Richard Slotkin's Regeneration Through Violence, and yeah. you know, big focus. There's a big focus in there on King Philip's War, but the kind of like central thesis is that that the American myth or the American narrative is basically like nothing without the uh, without the Indian Wars. And like, you know, we're talking about like kind of cultural piece around 
Columbus and how that's like been so integrated. And it's like much more, much more of a subtle thing where this sort of like Indian war is just like kind of going up to Frederick Jackson Turner is like, it's why we have such, you know, why, why there's a, um, such an emphasis on violence in American culture. I'm just wondering if you could comment on that. Yeah, it's it's been a long time since I've read Slotkin, right? But but that, you know, look look, right? You you have um, the Intercept report from a couple years back where law enforcement officials were looking at the the the, the DAPL, the the, the no uh, the, the Dakota Access Pipeline protesters and describe, describing them in terms as as, as jihadists. You have what the names of our, you know, the Apache helicopter and things like that. You have Indian country being used as sort of a metaphor in in the Vietnam War and probably in in, in the more recent conflicts as well. It, it provides a language for American conflicts that's been there there constantly. And I think the bigger thing that I think students need to realize is again how how ubiquitous this violence was. I mean, in, in general, the violence in early America was, was mind-blowing by our standards, right? So, you know, slaves and pirates and gibbets at, at the ports and, and, and all that. You know, you take an event like the, the Paxton Boys massacre in, in, in December of 1763, and you have these people breaking into a, essentially a jail where these, these Conestoga, Conestogas are, are, are being kept for their own protection, Christian, Christian Indians, and these 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 savages right <laughs> the paxton boys they 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 kill them all and and you know it, they they kill three and four year olds with hatchets you now when i when i teach this to kids i kind of stand close to the the kid sitting in the front row because his height sitting on a chair would be the height of a you know a, a child right and just you know for me to reach that kid with a hatchet right and, and just get a sense of the, the intimacy of this violence. The argument I make, and I make this in a textbook, and I make this, I think, in, in, in a number of the things I write, is that how, how, do, how, do, how do these people get there? Mm -hmm. how, how, how do you get to a point where you can carry out that kind of violence and, and justify it? Because if you, if you can't explain it, you really can't explain any of American history. Because there's so much of that towards different peoples of color over the, the broad expanse of, over several centuries of this history. And it, you know, it, get, it gets old, man. It gets tiring to read it because it's just, it can bring you, writing a textbook, man, I got depressed. Yeah, yeah. And so it was just like, I'm, I, you know, my training was as an early American historian, so that was sort of my first venture, I taught it. But to really, really read all the literature, and, and now I kind of stay up on all the literature, it's just, you know, is it getting better? Well, yeah, there's, there's, there's more plumbing on the reservation. There's more houses with electricity, life expectancy slowly going up, but racism towards native peoples is real. And it's, it's continuing. You mentioned it, Scott. Um, I saw it, especially when I taught in Montana, where at, at the college where I taught Montana state at Billings, native American students were, were quite clearly an unwelcome and despised minority on campus. And you, you, any, and any of these these measures of social well-being, incarceration rates, their likelihood of being killed by police, uh, infant mortality rates, life expectancy, heart disease, cirrhosis, all these kinds of problems, suicide rates, right? By any of these measures, Native peoples are are are, are suffering, and and it, it it just is constant. And just to read it, it, it 
took some long walks. <laughs> Quite yeah. Long walks when I was writing that just to kind of get through it because sometimes, and when you read stories like the, the things our president says, or you read some of these violent crimes that that I, I write about on the blogs and these murders that take place, or this this scourge of of, of missing and murdered indigenous women, right? You, you're, the listeners of this blog can follow the hashtag MMIW on Twitter. It's, it's unreal. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just devastating. You know, we, we've kind of this year, we've seen some like progress in some of the cultural stuff, I would say, of like, we see like here in the Bay Area, San Francisco took its Columbus statue down before a bunch of rabble rousers could go tear it down. You know, we've seen city and states change Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, the Washington Redskins are going to change their name. Do you think any of that's going to translate into like more material gain? I mean, like the county yeah. that Pine Ridge is in is worse, most yeah. poverty-stricken county. Healthcare on reservations is terrible. Navajo, and as a result, like the Navajo Nation was devastated by COVID this year. Right. Right. And so, like, do you think we'll see some material gain? Well, these, I like, hope from so. This cultural progress. I mean, my college a couple of years back implemented a. We do a territorial acknowledgement at the beginning of, of campus gatherings where we, you know, this is the land of this Seneca Nation and the Tonawanda Seneca Nation. Say that out loud. We say that to rooms with <laughs> no Native American students, <laughs> you know, and, and, and look, you know, other than some, some dingbat football fans and the people producing logoed sweatshirts and stuff, all these things you're talking about, taking down a st Columbus statue, um, changing from Columbus Day to Indigenous People Day, it doesn't cost you or I anything. Right, right, right. Easy. And that's what, you know, and, and so let's let's do something more meaningful. I've, I, you know, I, I thought, you know, I, I suggested we fly the Indigenous, the Haudenosaunee flag on, on our college flagpole. This is sort of a, just one small gesture to make it a welcoming place. Won't do it. Governor won't allow it. You know, or or make some hire someone to recruit Native American students and, and hire Native American faculty so that there's a kind of community on campus when when these students come. There's no money for this kind of stuff. So I hope there's serious change. But I think, you know, look, man, you're a historian. <laughs> when it actually starts costing white people stuff, that's when you get the reaction. So am I optimistic? I've been at this a long time. No, I'm not optimistic. I'll keep, I'll keep doing what I can to try to make it happen. And I think a lot of people way more talented and committed than I am, especially young people, are doing amazing stuff to make this happen, right? The, the DAPL protest, that was a big deal. Yeah, right? I would say that was a watershed moment. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it started, I think, with Amy covering it. And, yeah. and, and, but then because of those kids and the young people with their 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 cell phones they they made it a national story so and and similarly yeah we wouldn't be having this black lives matter movement if it weren't for young people with bystanders with phones yeah so looking at here's the i'll change my answer right looking at younger people i can feel optimistic that some of this change will come Right. And every once in a while, I got one of these students who's fired up and they they like, what can I do? And, and I, you know, I even had this one a couple of years ago. And he's like, I want to do something about this. It's actually, he's a kid who went to UH, Andrew Reiser. Um, he followed me there, only I, I ditched him. <laughs> and, <laughs> but he, 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 wanted to, he wanted to do something about it. He's a Jewish kid from New York City. So he, he interned at the um, 
NARF, Native American Rights Fund, right? I mean, I've had these students who talk their way into these these amazing, you know, white kids from the suburbs talking their talking their, themselves in these these positions where they can actually do something. And so I think that if we get out of the young people's way, yeah, meaningful change can happen. But there's a lot of old people like us who are who are part of the problem, who don't want to get uncomfortable, who don't want to have to pay anything we don't want to have to cost any have it cost us anything if they cost us something whether it's real or perceived we're out and so let's let the, let's let's hope for the young people to <laughs> break some we're, windows right i mean the, the theme here is columbus day but there's there's so much more to it and um you know we've talked about the 1619 project and obviously none of us are trying to create a, a tension between African-American history and Native American history. Uh, but um, clearly, I think African-American history, we, we know more about it. There is the 1619 project. There's no um, analog uh, for Native American history. I haven't been up on the literature really forever, but especially in the last 20, 25 years ago, I remember teaching Michael Rogan, I think, book where he yeah. talks about, you know, how um, removing Native Americans from the southeast was critical for, for expanding cotton plantations, the primitive accumulation. And, you know, that's a really critical part of the U.S. history that, you know, if I hadn't read that book, I probably wouldn't even know it. And that's, you know, kind of what I do. And so how do you kind of uh, get around? I mean, is there the possibility of creating a 1492 project or a, a whatever year this Pequot War? I can't remember, you know. I mean, is there yeah, some way to kind of... Because, yeah, yeah. So because that's every bit as, as critical. And I know when 1619 came out, there were criticisms of it. That, that was one of the criticisms of it, that Native American history and, and the creation of uh, this state was, uh, you know, when people talk about um, settler colonialism, to me, that's far more applicable to natives than it is to, to slaves yeah. who are actually brought over here, right? So um, is there some way to kind of create an analog to 1619 to, to kind of get people more aware of of uh, just how important and central, maybe more than any other kind of history, Native American history is to what became the United States? I, I hope I hope so. I would love to see someone in the New York Times do a do a do a similar project for for, for Native Americans or, or anyone. I, I, I have that in line with the textbook. We're going to start doing a, a third edition um, uh, soon. So that'll that'll be out in 2022, I think, is what I agreed to. So so and I, I think I will write. I got a co-writer helping me, but um, I think we'll look <laughs> the third edition as being an analog to 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 that. And I think it's, it's absolutely essential. Um, and look, the 1619 project, of course, it's been been criticized for various things, but it, it, it's a synthesis, it's a synthesis, a synthesis, right? It, it's an attempt to bring together a lot of literature, a, a vast historiography, and to cover this 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 vast field in a, in a relatively small space. So that that we historians are quibbling about it and arguing about it doesn't diminish the importance of what it was. And with the Native American project too, I think you, you will have similar arguments. And you know, the historians know those arguments are, are good. They're 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 healthful. They're 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 part of the game. We don't shy away from these 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 arguments, right? Um, the problem, and, and I think that's sort of the the challenge that the 1619 project has posed for a lot of people who are against it is 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 um, 1619 can basically say, okay, prove us wrong. But but they won't do that, right? You see this with the president, you see it with others. They, they, they say, oh, it's an, an attack against 
against America. And they never put themselves, not once, they're the, the biggest goddamn cowards. They will never put themselves in a position where you can say, okay, how does this undermine love of country? What is wrong with this depiction of the past? What is wrong with talking about systemic inequality or systemic racism? You, 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 they won't, they're afraid of the freaking discussion. We historians, we won't, we, we don't shy away from the argument. And that's, that's, that's the challenge is because we're trying to convince people who are not arguing in good faith. And that's what any kind of Native American project would run up against. But I think all, you know, I, look, man, I, I've got a limited skill set. I mean, I can, I went to school, I, I've read a lot of books. (laughs) <laughs> and I can, I can you start, you can start a podcast. I can, yeah, I can throw some sentences together. Right. Yeah. So I'll do what I can do. And, 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 and I think, you know, I can talk to a hundred students a semester and I can write and, and you all, you, you guys do the same and you reach an audience with a podcast. All we can do is keep doing it. Yeah. And, and look how far it's gone, right? What five years ago was there, um, if, if I wrote hashtag BLM on the side of a wall, would anyone know what that is? I, I don't, I don't not, it's, it's a relatively short amount of time. Uh, yeah. MMIW, missing and murdered indigenous women, no one would know what that is. These things have grabbed people's attention. And it's, um, and in a sense, you know, things like missing and murdered indigenous women, that, that movement, starting with like Idle No More and things like that in Canada, that predated the historians. Right, the activists are, pre-day, yeah. are in front of the historians, and the historians are following up and adding some half and saying, "Look, these kids are onto something. They got it right." You know, we're we're we've got some catching up to do, but I think. Well, and I don't know more. Are grandmothers too? It's the indigenous grandmothers. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right, right. So, so elders too, but um, yeah. but using using the the technology that our kids are 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 so comfortable with, and so uh, you know willing to to use for for social good so i'm you know i i would i would love to see this 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 continue to grow but the obstacles are enormous but they're they're nothing we haven't seen right when when i mean jesus when when you know uh the new left right when you were doing your your foreign policy stuff or your your diplomatic history and what well, walter lefebvre right was dangerous right and yeah and things yeah. like that right you know it's it's the national history standards to talk about slavery was was dangerous. We, we, we hear this all the time. Yeah. We can we can we can win that fight if we can get anyone in the ring. We can win that fight. That's a, one of the things I always point out um, to lefties, especially is you know Howard Zinn's actually kind of mainstream now, not for Trump, but a lot of the stuff that Zinn talked about, you know, is is kind of standard. I used to do these uh, summer, um, I think a lot of them were NAH seminars for history teachers. I did many of them all over the country, especially in Houston. And uh, these are high school teachers and, you know, they weren't shocked by any of this. It was kind of the way they were teaching high schools, even in Texas. So that was encouraging. Um, Before we go on, um, we're going to do a little, uh, tell people what they're listening to and uh, thank them for listening to us and asking them to share, uh, you know, our podcast and all that. So Scott, you're better at this than I am. So yeah. I'll also say that nonprofits like the Zen Education Project have actually been really good about providing teachers, even like elementary school teachers, with good curriculum around some of that, around people's history. Um, but yes, folks, you're listening to uh, Michael Oberg 
and we are talking about Columbus Day, Indigenous Peoples Day here on the Green and Red podcast. Uh, if you want to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, we would love to have you follow us and like and comment all of our posts. Uh, and then we also have a YouTube channel and please go to YouTube and hit subscribe. And YouTube is a relatively new thing for Green and Red, but we've uh, been having a lot of good video that we put up. And so definitely like check out our, our YouTube channel. Uh, and then we're also on all of your podcast listening platforms, which you're probably listening to right now. So if you're already listening, maybe go down and hit, <laughs> maybe go down and hit rate and review about what a great podcast we are and give us a five-star review. And then last, uh, if you want to become a donor to Green Red Podcast, we're at patreon.com backslash Green Red Podcast. You can become a recurring donor there, or you can make a one-time donation at our wonderful, wonderful website called greenredpodcast.org. Um, so yeah, uh, become a fan and a follower of Green and Red Podcast. We're, we're becoming a media empire. Look out, Murdoch. Yeah. 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 And also give us money so we don't have to take money from Chevron and Bank of America and all the corporate sponsors. They've been they've been throwing it at us, but we keep saying no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We keep throwing <laughs> them down. Uh not today, Satan. <laughs> not today, Satan. <laughs> what do you say to the god of death? <laughs> um kind of uh kind of like shifting a little bit. Uh I think we were talking about this before we got started, but you like I you know, was reading your blog before um, before we kind of kicked off this episode over the last couple of days, and there was a, a blog you posted about Reynold High Pine, and, you know, kind of going back to some of the, like, you know, hoping to see some of the cultural progress turn into, like, material material gains. Can you tell us a little bit about Reynold High, High Pine and, like, the sort of, like, the sort of epidemic of police killings on, on reservations and with Native people? Yeah, this was a story I stumbled across. I was reading a, a, a Haudenosaunee newspaper called Aquasasne Notes, which was really important in the late 60s or early 70s, it's sort of an activist um, yeah. uh, American Indian Movement newspaper. I was working on a book project and nothing to do with this, but they had these little digests uh, from around the country. And because I'd lived for four years in Billings, Montana, and, and it was my first teaching job, the story of Reynold High Pine caught my attention. He was a... Uh, a tiny guy, right? Five foot two or three, 130 pounds. And story goes, he got drunk, stumbled in front of a freight train about in, in early in the evening and, and, and was struck by that train and died. And his body was found in the freight yard on Billings South Side, which is sort of, that was the rough, rough part of town. Um, witnesses had seen him at a bar at, at midnight, several hours after he'd supposedly died, um, where he'd gotten beaten up by an off-duty police officer, still in uniform, who was working as a, as a bouncer at a bar. This cop was had a whole, a whole foot taller than him, you know, 50 pounds heavier than him, just, or at least 50, much bigger guy, and, 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 and beaten him to death, or beaten him so badly that he, that he, that he died thereafter. This cop's, cop's still alive, by the way. I'm, if I were in Billings, I would follow this story up. But it was, it was one of these stories where um, a cause of death was determined pretty quickly that it was it was uh, it was an accidental death he was struck by a train and no one believed it and there were a pair of aim activists american indian movement activists who were students at uh montana what was then called eastern montana college where i ended up teaching and they started organizing calling into question 
and they they built coalitions, right? They appealed to a very moderate Native American Businessmen's Association in Billings, ranchers and people like that, to and, and they didn't buy it either. So they, the, 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 the authorities in Billings were forced to call it a coroner's inquest to take testimony. And they, they came out with a, a, a ruling or a decision that High Pine's death was, was probably accidental. And they, they highlighted or they underlined that word probably. They, I had considerable doubts about this. But it was just, it, it just struck me as this was, this was, you know, a couple decades ago. And it just struck me as such a resonant story with what we're seeing with Black Lives Matter and with a number of the stories of Native peoples who've died at the hands of police that I've written about on the blog. Um, and again, many of these instances were police brutality or vigilantes shooting Indians or people who had mental illness, right? A guy in Omaha a couple of years back who was was licking the windows of a gas station where people were dining on the other side of it. Clearly someone who was not well, um, yelling at people, walking around, not dressed for the weather and was gunned down by the police. Um, uh, a kid who's written suicide notes, who's holding a, a, a butcher knife, or not even a butcher knife, but a kitchen knife and the police shoot him. And, and and so I, I you know when I see these stories I I I, I write about them they're, they're they're not enough to write a whole article or a whole book on, but they do allow me to make these connections between the past and the present and that's one of the things I want people to do or I hope people do who read it is that they'll see these connections and they'll 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 see these parallels. And Zachary Bearheels is one of these guys who just didn't get justice right. You you can't read that case, and believe that the beating he had at the hands of this off-duty police officer had, had, had nothing to do with this. And, you know, he was outside the bar, Zachary Bear Heels was. He, he may have been mouthing off to some women there or whatever the case may be. Um, but the policeman just went nuts on him. And five hours later, his body's found in the railroad yard, um, not all that far from the bar. And again, it just gets old, right? It keeps happening again and again and again, these stories. And um, when I taught in Billings, um, you know, <laughs> as a colonial historian, right? And we had one of these terrible deans or provosts there. And she goes, you gotta do, you gotta do, you gotta do applied research. I thought, well, what, what the hell is applied research? I'm a colonial historian, <laughs> I don't even know what this means. Yeah. So I started talking to my Native American students. I started saying, hey, can I turn on a tape recorder? And why don't you tell me what it's like? And, you know, uh, Hardin, Montana, which is about 60 miles from Billings, it's a border town on the Crow Indian Reservation. You stop in Hardin to get gas when you go to the Little Bighorn Battlefield site. So it's a lot of people passing through. These, these, these young people who are students at my school went to school with uh, no dogs or Indian signs in, in, in buildings in the 80s, right? This isn't long, um, 80s and 90s. The, they're they're told by their gym teacher to hey make sure you take a leak before you out on the field they need to water down a crow right you know this this over the top racism um and <laughs> you know and I went when I when I started paying attention to crow this is in 95 96 at Hardin High School they had like a, a culture day right so like the you know the 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 
the Polish students made pierogies and the, <laughs> you know, the, the Native American students made fry bread or whatever. And, and the white parents, all the white parents, they walked. They pulled their kids out of school. We don't want to be. And, and so these Crow students, you know, they're, they're 15, 16, so they shot off their mouths a little bit and, and complained about racism. And next day distributed throughout Horizon, uh, Harden was this, this white man's Bible, right? This kind of this Christian identity tracked that, you know, only white people are God's creation and this kind of stuff. And, you know, so I, I started talking to people and the racism in Montana towards Native Americans was so virulent and so openly expressed that this story from a couple of decades back, I can't remember what the date of the, the, the rental high plant story was. It just it was 1972, maybe. 72. So, you know, I'm going 40, 40, 50 years ago. It was, it was, um, really, really discouraging because it seemed that very little had changed in, in, in Billings. And I know, I know much has changed. They have a good curriculum or a decent curriculum in their schools. Um, but the racism is there and it's not going away. You know, um, you talked about police, well, we just talked about police killings and, you know, even since George Floyd, I've read, I don't know, a, a fair number of, of stories about these killing uh, Native Americans, which I think I probably saw in, you know, kind of more left-oriented media. And, you know, we're seeing right now, you know, like Harley Davidson and, and NASCAR supporting Black Lives Matter, um, but nothing really kind of parallel to, to Native Americans. So even liberals don't really want to touch that. I mean, yeah. you know, you know, and, and Obama was the guy who sent the troops out to, to uh, uh, to dabble, right? So, yeah. um, you know, is this, I mean, why is it, you know, apparently uh, much easier and kind of hip now, right? There's kind of this hip commodification of African-American lives, but nothing at all similar uh, for uh, Indian lives, which are, you know, objectively, you know, in, in any criteria, poverty rates and healthcare rates and suicide rates, yeah. uh, the worst in America, the worst in the United States. Well, part of, I mean, there's, there's, there's obviously a geographic factor, right? And that Black Lives Matter is taking place in American cities. It's, yeah. it's, it's taking place in media markets. The African-American population is, is much larger than the Native American population. That's part of it. Second, you know, uh, these these stories, I, I pick up, I, you know, I follow a thing called Indians.com, I-N-D-I-N-Z.com, which is sort of a, a daily digest of, of news stories from around the country that just picks up on Native American issues and You'll see it in in regional newspapers, right? In 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 Nebraska or South Dakota or whatever, when when they get covered, look, there, there's you know, I mean, all this other news so absorbs the media's attention that they don't pay any attention to Indians. And again, you're right about Obama. Obama did nothing to help to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline. He, it was going forward. He reacted to the violence, similarly to the Kennedy administration and the Freedom Rides, right? That. The protests forced their hand in a certain level, and by that point, it was it was it was it was too late. He could say all he wanted; the the the, the pipeline was almost done, and it would be an easy thing for Trump to come in and just undo it once he did it. And that that's exactly what happened. Yeah, he didn't he didn't actually reject the permit or whatever it was until like after the election. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was way too late. And look, um, again, like I mentioned before. It was those protesters who made the story. Yeah. Well, while we're talking about liberals, um, and lately <laughs> we've seen this, uh, I'm sorry, this iconography about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, another uh, sacred uh, 
liberal who we we like to talk about here on Green and Red. And she, uh, I don't know if she was the the uh, author of the opinion, but she, uh, uh, yes. well, she was okay. Issued one of the you know most important and and really critical uh, decisions in court history uh, about yeah. Native Americans. And you want to you want to talk about RBG, the notorious RBG. <laughs> yeah, well, let me just get a little background here, right? And, and yeah. the Constitution says almost nothing about Indians, but what it does say in Article 1, Section 8 is that um, Congress has the power to regulate commerce with the Indian tribes. And in the first federal Congress, Congress passed a piece of legislation known as the Trade and Intercourse Act that spelled out what that meant. And one of the, one of the provisions that said that, that in order for a purchase of, an, of Indian land to be valid, it had to be done by Congress, overseen by the national government, and the resulting agreement had to be ratified by, by the Senate. New York bought a lot of land uh, in violation of the Trade and Intercourse Act. And in the 1970s, Indian tribes started suing. Well, in, 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 in the case in question, it's called uh, Oneida Indian Nation versus Sherrill, town of Sherrill. Um, the Oneida Indian Nation had purchased land on the open market from willing sellers. And they, you know, had had the district court and the circuit court had all ruled that that was now Indian land. It came off the tax rolls. Town of Sherrill began foreclosure proceedings, and then the case goes before the Supreme Court. And Ginsburg wrote the opinion in Sherrill for an 8-1 court. Uh, and what she argued is that, yes, New York State had purchased Indian land in violation of the Trade and Intercourse Act, and yes, that law says that those sales are not valid. However, they took place too long ago and any remedy would be more disruptive than the original crime. And she pointed out that the indigenous population of Madison and Oneida County, where the, where the tract in question is located, was like 1%. And that's why it would be disruptive. And she completely ignores the fact that <laughs> how that became 1%, right? Originally it was 100%, then it became down to 1%. It didn't just happen. It's not like the, the leaves falling every fall. It was, it was, it was a crime. It was a, a violation of the laws of the United States. She said, yep, it was, but it's too long ago. You're shit out of luck. And rumor has it, the story goes that she regretted that decision towards the end of her life. I was surprised, frankly, when she joined the majority in the recent McGirt decision. I thought that was a case where she, she would say that it would be overly disruptive to allow these reservation boundaries still to exist. And McGirt's a whole long story that, you know, you can read about on, on the blog if you want. That's the, and that's the Oklahoma case they just recently. Yeah, had. that's the Oklahoma case. And, and Gor Gorsuch, case. Uh, Gorsuch held with the opinion, uh, with the majority, right? Yeah, yeah. she, yeah. she and Gorsuch both, both ruled yeah. them. Gorsuch, I think, wrote the yeah. opinion. And Gorsuch has been a guy on the court who, who believes treaties matter. Um, so that that has been a bit of a surprise, I think, for, for many of us, but um, not that. But Ginsburg's decision, what it did was shut off all the Indian land claims in New York State. And look, New York Indians, they weren't, they weren't seeking to throw anyone off the land. They had the right. What they wanted was damages, rent for using the land. And they wanted the ability to purchase the land back on the open market from willing sellers and make reconstitute the reservations again. She said, no, too late, too disruptive, it's gone. And whether she regretted it or not, the damage it did was significant because that doctrine, the latches doctrine, right? The damages took place too long ago. 
has been used in other cases to the detriment of native peoples. It's a similar argument that <laughs> when Africans or African Americans are asking for reparations from slavery, et cetera, that like, that's also the sort of line. This is like too long ago, damage is yeah. already done. I didn't do it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> We're, uh, we're, we're kind of getting close, but uh, one question, which, you know, kind of goes back to Trump, because I know at one point, wasn't he trying to buy a casino and he was, you know, like very publicly upset that, you know, Native Americans were working. And that kind of whole issue of casinos is, I think, really big in popular culture. And, I you know, kind of a lot of uh, a lot of whites I've heard use as an excuse. Well, they have all this money from the casinos. And how does that actually play out? I mean, it, I, I, my assumption is that there's a small percentage of people who are actually getting the wealth off of those and it doesn't really trickle down. Is, is that really the case or yeah, am I wrong? Well, there's, there's casinos all over the country and in Indian right, right. all over the country. Some are immensely lucrative. Some barely scrape by, right? And, and it depends like those along the I-95 corridor, they do pretty well. Um, I don't know how all of them do with their business, but in, in, in New York, what you see, is the proceeds from the 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 the, the, re, the casino go back into the community, and and it, and it's fantastic, right? So, so Seneca Nation, for example, they have a, they have a couple of casinos, one in Buffalo, one in Niagara Falls, um, one in in in, in the southern tier, right, or southwestern part of the state, right? They're, I think they're the largest employer in in Niagara Falls, which is sort of like you know saying you're the, the skinniest kid at fat camp, but it's still <laughs> an accomplishment. Right? Niagara Falls is pretty pretty decrepit but look so so i'll give you a quick example because i know we're running out of time but seneca nation always had dumpy school buses the worst school buses were used to bus their kids so they said fine what we'll do is we'll reinvest this casino money in our own fleet of school buses we'll hire our own people as fleet mechanics and as as clerks and as bookkeepers and as drivers to get this going so the the revenue from the casinos it's not a one-shot deal it's part of sovereignty right it goes back into the community and it underwrites other kinds of economic enterprises, which which strengthen these nations. So, are people getting rich on some reservations? Yeah, yeah. Little Six in Minnesota, a lot of money. Uh, the Chumash Casino, not far from where I grew up in California, tons of money coming in there for sure. But those are the exceptions, and mm -hmm. you'll hear stories about those exceptions where they make a big deal out of them. But that's much more of this money goes into fuel other kinds of economic enterprises to the benefit of the people in the community. More disinformation from uh, Trump. <laughs> that was a yeah. shock. <laughs> well, yeah, and he's just a racist too. So, <laughs> oh, he's he's a lot of things. Uh, yeah. uh, right now, he's a, a drug-addled, uh, uh, unhinged maniac. But uh, anyway, I, you know, I don't know if there's anything uh, you know you want you want to say to finish up. I mean, this is I mean, it's becoming a bigger issue. I'm right here in Ohio right now, where you know a lot of people are very upset because it seems pretty likely the Cleveland baseball team is going to change its name and. It's funny going back to the kind of uh, intro about Columbus and, and, and Italians. Um, a lot of people are very upset. And I always point out, I, my family is from Sicily, which is very different than, than the rest of Italy. And uh, Northern Italians have a, a derogatory phrase, a derisive phrase, terone, that they use for Sicilians and Southerners, which is basically people of the land. And they have a caricature of people like, you know, this guy with like a hick with a cardboard suitcase and a big polka dot tie. But it also reflects the kind of material conditions of Italy, where the South is incredibly poor and the North, you know, really wields economic power, material power over the South. And, you know, lifespans are different. You know, uh, all that stuff's different. And so, you know, I kind of try to point this out to people that it may just be a name of a team like Terone is just a, a derisive nickname, but it has real life 
material conditions. Do you think going forward we're going to see, you know, we'll probably see more of these things happen. The, the, I don't know yeah. if the Chicago Black, uh, didn't one of the um, NHL teams recently decide to change the name or something, I think. So, and, you know, we're seeing, I think, Land of Lakes is taking the, is it taking the, yeah. the uh, Indian off? Yeah, Butter so, girl. Yeah. So, I mean, these in one, on one hand, you know, they're symbolic and they don't speak to issues like, you know, poverty and alcoholism and stuff like that. But do you think that's, you know, we're kind of head, treading in the right direction now? I, I do. And, and, take, yeah. and taking and, down Columbus statues. Yeah. Right. Well, it, it, and it's, it's, it's easier than that, right? All these images, right? Chief Wahoo or the logo on yeah. the Redskins uh, helmet, right? Or um, I don't know, the, the Blackhawks logo, right? They're all images of the past. Yeah. And you, you, and, and if, if we were to ask students to give me, you know, describe an Indian for me, or ask kids to draw an Indian, they, they draw leather and feather and beads. They would draw an image from the past. Um, they don't, they don't see Indians as people in the present. And when you view Indians as people who don't have a present, it becomes much easier to dismiss their very legitimate grievances as inauthentic. Right. And, and I think that's why these, 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 these stereotyped images are damaging and, and, and can be gotten rid of without losing anything as a society. Oh, sure, sure. Well, you know, I'll let Scott finish up. Thank you. We're going to actually play a little outro song, which is a, an Italian novelty song about Columbus Day by a guy named Lou Monti, just to give some people some idea of, you know, kind of how silly Italians can be on, on this issue. But um, it's good talking to you. It's been too long. At some point, if uh, COVID ever lifts, I'll get up your way. Maybe we'll go to a baseball game or do something like that. Um, yeah, you know, thanks, I really, Bob. I'm really glad we, we got you on to talk about something that um, you know, it was important to me, not just as a lefty, but but as, you know, an Italian-American, because, uh, you know, I, I'm actually kind of proud of my people, but uh, not not this. You know, obviously, I'd much rather uh, pay homage to Sacco and Vanzetti and uh, Vito Marcantonio right. and people like that than, uh, than a guy who was sailing for Spain and murdered, you know, gazillions or led to the murder of gazillions of people. So thanks so much. You know, um, you're welcome back to Green and Red anytime and keep writing all your great stuff. And I urge everybody out there to... Uh, Check out your blog and check out your book, and you know, kind of go what's, from there. What's the what's the for the blog? It's uh, michaellaroyoberg.com, one word. All right, and we'll put it in the episode notes as well. Yeah. Cool. Uh, All right. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, you've been listening to Michael Oberg. We've been talking about Indigenous Peoples Day, Columbus Day, and lots of other things. Uh, you're listening to Green and Red podcast. Uh, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to become a recurring donor, go to patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast or make a do one-time donation at greenredpodcast.org. And of course, always subscribe to us on our YouTube channel. And we will talk to you next time. In 1492, three ships sailed out the sea, the Nina and the Pinta and the Santa Maria. And as they sailed the stormy sea on that historic day, from way up in the crow's nest, you could hear Luigi say, Please, Mr. Columbus, the tread of the ship around. Take me back, I want to feel my two feet on the ground. Why you tell Isabella that the world is round? Please, Mr. Columbus, the tread of the ship around.